This is the Press Box. So we, our mean, tricky body list is James Harden and Patrick Mahomes. And yeah. now Patrick Mahomes runs kind of funny. With Grainy and Bischoff. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Turvel Beck. Turvel Beck's body is not tricky. We know exactly what Turbo Beck's body is. It is not tricky in any way, not at all. That is a complete lie. Stop trying to put Turbo Beck in that category. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is in Los Angeles for the Super Bowl. So Adam Candy is in today. Jared is supposedly at Radio Row. I don't know if we're going to hear from Jared today or not. We might. It might happen. Might be a fun day with Jared at Radio Row, or he might not exist anymore. Here we go. The first bite. Is Patrick Graham a good defensive coordinator? What a great day to have Adam Candy on the show, because Adam, I'm going to defer to you for now. What do you think of Patrick Graham as a defensive coordinator after two years with the Giants? So... The Raiders made a good hire. That's where we start with this. Whether he was good with the Giants, I, you really can use the stats to tell any story you want, but you have to understand something if you're going to determine, do you think Patrick Graham is a good defensive coordinator by the time he spent with the Giants? Now, two years as Giants defensive coordinator, one year before that under Brian Flores and Brian Flores' first year as the Miami Dolphins head coach and of course it was a disaster in Miami because that entire year was a disaster <laughs> in Miami but if you look at what happened with the Giants you have to understand the stress that the Giants offense put Patrick Graham's defense under constantly and in order to appreciate that you have to look at what they did points wise in last year alone the Giants offense Tyler such as it is in the year of our Lord 2021 managed to score less than 10 points four times in 17 games. They managed to score 20 points or less in 12 of 17 games. So Patrick Graham's defense was constantly being asked to win games for the Giants and beyond belief actually did help win a few games for the Giants last year. Pretty remarkable if you think about it, because he was working with a defense that Dave Gettleman, the general manager, had set up to be a run-stopping defense in a pass-first NFL. So you have to hope that Patrick Graham coming to a franchise that uses a couple of New England Patriots compadres to organize this roster is going to understand that you need to be playing a pass first stopping defense they did a pretty good job of that in new england so you are giving him credit for handling a poor situation as opposed to blame for being a part of a poor situation i am because the giants fired the head coach after two years they fired joe judge the guy who hired Patrick Graham. They didn't fire Patrick Graham and keep Joe Judge and say, hey, well, the defense really was terrible, but we think this guy has things going the right way. Everything under Joe Judge was a disaster for the Giants, and I don't know that Patrick Graham is the one who should be sharing the responsibility for that because Brian Dable, the new head coach, wanted to keep him. And that's the interesting part because so they did kind of steal him from the Giants here, right? Like there was a tweet from Jordan Schultz who said the Giants believe Patrick Graham would stay on his defensive coordinator and we're stunned to learn he was going to the Raiders. Like, so they 
The Raiders went in and basically stole him from the Giants. Somebody else wanted Patrick Graham. This isn't a case where nobody else wanted him. They stole him from another team. So you have to understand the situation here, and this comes down to some weird little NFL rules where Patrick Graham interviewed for the Minnesota Vikings head coaching job. He also interviewed elsewhere for defensive coordinator, I believe in Pittsburgh. And what happened there was once you allow a candidate to interview for another job, you cannot then selectively block him from going to a different opportunity, right? So once Brian Dable came in and the Giants decided they were holding on to Patrick Graham or wanted to hold on to Patrick Graham, they thought it was done. They thought, okay, well, yeah, uh, now, now we're going to keep him. Well, what they didn't realize was they, they wanted to block him from being able to talk to the Raiders, but they couldn't because they'd already allowed him to go look at other opportunities. And so the opportunity to reunite with Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler, who he'd spent time with in New England, proved to be the right one for Patrick Graham. So if you give Patrick Graham the benefit of the doubt that in his first year as a defensive coordinator, he was in Miami where the owner was trying to pay the head coach to lose. And if you give him the benefit of the doubt for being in New York under Joe judge and the team being a disaster for two years, that's fine and all. The only thing that I just, for me, there still isn't evidence that Patrick Graham has been a good defensive coordinator. Like, we might be able to throw away or make excuses for why some of his defenses were bad, but there's still, there's still nothing for us to point to and say, hey, he his defense was good that year because the three years he's been a defensive coordinator, he hasn't actually had a good or above average defense. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad hire, and I probably put more stock into the fact that the Giants wanted to keep him than anything DVOA-wise or pro football focus rankings-wise his last three years as a defensive coordinator. But it's still, I don't know, it's hard for me, if somebody who doesn't know a ton about Patrick Graham, to really look at it, and I just don't get the universal praise for it, I guess is, is my point here, because everybody has said, oh, great hire by the Raiders. Patrick Graham, great defensive coordinator. And I, I don't get it simply because his resume is assistant coach for some good Patriot defenses, bad defenses every time he's been an actual defensive coordinator. Welcome to Josh McDaniels, Raiders head coach. What evidence do we have that Josh McDaniels yeah. Yeah. is a good coach, right? We have no idea. And that's part of the problem when you hire from New England. If you're going to go and reach into the Patriots tree, you have no idea what the fruit is going to look like once it's off those branches. And that's the situation. Josh McDaniels, as a head coach, was objectively bad in Denver. He's admitted as much. Uh, now you look at him coming into Las Vegas and you say, what evidence do you have that Josh McDaniels can be a good head coach in the NFL? You don't. You look at Dave Ziegler, if you want to be honest about this, and we, get, we say, oh, well, he engineered this turnaround for the Raiders last year. Uh, for, excuse me, for the Patriots last year with a bunch of big free agent signings, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Part of what we looked at with those free agent signings was to say the tax bill on those doesn't come due until year two. If you look at the Patriots cap situation last year, those contracts were all backloaded in such a way to make them very friendly to New England. And they're going to make things a little more difficult come this year, especially when you factor in what did they go do? They signed two big tight ends, right? Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry. Johnny Smith got a massive contract and wasn't even active every game. He was a healthy scratch for the New England Patriots. The point of all of this is we can't judge Patrick Graham any more than we can judge McDaniels or Ziegler because in a lot of ways they're in the same boat. 
So does it bother you at all that they are going so heavy on the former Patriots? Like, is the Patriot way, like, are they too invested into one tree, basically, of coaches in front office? It's hard to say that because if you look across the league, it is a very tight fraternity among coaches, as we've had highlighted by Brian Flores. Uh, Coaches are going to bring on the guys they know. They're going to bring on their friends, the guys they're familiar with. And we would do the same thing, wouldn't we? Right? Um, If we were starting a new radio program, we would want to talk to people that we know can do it. So, you know, we wouldn't have Jared. (laughs) Uh, One other, uh, I guess, narrative around the Patrick Graham hire is the idea that he is going to change his defenses a lot. Uh, Tashawn Reed tweeted out, you know, that he was zone heavy last year, but played some cover one, played cover three, played cover four, uh, rotated through defenses. He apparently told Max Crosby, hey, don't worry about if we're going to play a three, four or four, three. I'm going to figure it out for you. And what I find interesting about that narrative is it's like the exact opposite narrative that we had of Gus Bradley last year as the Raiders defensive coordinator, who was, we're playing cover three on every single snap, except for maybe when Patrick Mahomes torches us for a first half, we might change then. Or playing cover three more than anybody else in the NFL. And I find that interesting because it feels a lot like credit to Patrick Graham simply for being different than the previous defensive coordinator. And listen, playing, mixing everything up, not having a true identity, whatever. Maybe that ends up being a good thing. Maybe that is the way that the Raiders need to run this defense. But I do find it interesting that that sort of seems like, hey, you're the exact opposite of what the Raiders used to have. And that's a good thing simply because it's different, not necessarily because it's good. We weren't going to talk about cover three on every snap for the Raiders up until they played the Chiefs midseason, right? We were actually fine to talk about how the Raiders' defense was so much better in 2021 than it was in previous seasons under Paul Gunther. So why are we now going to go back and say that Patrick Graham being able to be flexible would be a problem? I I don't. I don't think so. And here's the game that I point to. November 1st, Monday Night Football, Giants at the Kansas City Chiefs, when the Chiefs were in the middle of the worst stretch of offense we've seen out of Patrick Mahomes. They did a pretty damn good job against Patrick Mahomes. They held them to 261 yards in the air. The Giants had the lead in that game 17-14 with just a couple of minutes elapsed in the fourth quarter. The Giants did what good defenses were able to do to the Kansas City Chiefs last year because they adjusted, because they played the looks that were giving Patrick Mahomes trouble. And then Gus Bradley, who, by the way, was hired today as the defensive coordinator in Indianapolis decided nope we're doing what we do and they fixed the Chiefs (laughs) and so I think if Patrick Graham is willing to come in and say yeah we're gonna do what we need to do you know what that is that's Belichick that's always been Belichick that's been Belichick saying defensively we're going to take away what you do best so on the defensive side of the ball in particular because Belichick is a defensive coach if someone wants to emulate what Bill Belichick has done Yeah, that I buy. Do I buy that because you worked for Bill Belichick, you can be a good head coach, you can bring the Patriot way? No, of course not, because that comes with Belichick. But if you want to talk about specifically on defense and being able to mimic what the Patriots do, yeah, that I can get behind. Um, Can I ask you again to repeat a stat chat earlier? How many games did the Giants score under 20 points last year? Um, The Giants last year, 
scored less than 20 points in 11 of 17 games. If you count the game, they scored exactly 20. They scored 20 or less in 12 of their 17 games. That's pretty good. Do you know how many times the Raiders did that last year? I did not look that stat up. Nine times. Patrick Graham's going to have the same problem again. The offense can't score. But coming up next, hey, it's a big sports weekend in Las Vegas. We are the home of All-Star. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Adam is the best position to be selected to the Pro Bowl, the punter, because you don't have to do anything but eat a couple hot dogs at halftime. The best position in professional sports is the punter. <laughs> Think about it. AJ Cole is now going to set up general generational wealth for his family because he punts the football. I mean, it doesn't even come with the pressure of being the kicker and having to score points. <laughs> Base, you're right, because every because if the kicker messes up, you do not get points that you thought you were getting. If the punter messes up, Usually, there's still the chance the defense can bail you out. Like, you're you're giving up, like, 20 yards of field position if you really mess up as a punter. So, you're right. Like, Ed Graney, his take is always that he wants to be, like, the, I think it's, like, the 125th ranked golfer in the world because nobody will recognize you. There's zero pressure on you to ever actually win anything or actually perform that well, but you're still going to make plenty of money to be happy and satisfied for the rest of your life. Punter's a little bit higher than that. It's like lefty reliever almost, even though lefty reliever still has a little bit more pressure because, you know, you give up a home run in the eighth inning and now everybody hates you. But it's pretty great. You can just eat hot dogs during the Pro Bowl and I guess hold for a couple of field goals, and it's a it's a good afternoon for him. The best part of that was that Lisa Salters pointed out the grass stains that were on his <laughs> knees, and he talked about how he had to really work his knees into the turf to make sure everybody knew that he had been on the field at some point because Mike Vrabel had told him from the jump there will be no punting today. AJ Cole's great. He's phenomenal. By the way, so, all right, I'm going to assume, well, well, I'll just ask you instead of assuming, how much of the Pro Bowl did you watch? Zero minutes and zero seconds. All right, beautiful work. Uh, I got about five more minutes in than you. I was excited to see, though, they put in the fourth and 15 onside kick scenario, which, I, you know, it's fun to see that as opposed to the onside kick is, hey, leave the offense on the field, see if you can pick up 15 yards on one play. Otherwise, the defense gets the ball. I like that. I mean, we see it in the NBA when they try out the Elam rule or Elam ending. I like when they're like, hey, let's try out a new rule for the all-star game that doesn't mean anything. Well, that's exactly what it's there for, the same way the minor leagues are where we experiment with things like pitch clocks. They also put in spot and choose, which for anybody who's been yelling about overtime and how unfair it is, I'm not one of those people. I think it's fine. But you can also experiment with things like spot and choose where you have the opportunity to say, okay, well, one team chooses where the spot's going to be. It's going to be you know, on the uh, plus 25 or whatever the case might be, and the other team gets to choose whether it wants to be on offense or defense. That's at least fun to think about. Yeah. Try out new rules. Now, more important question for you. Would you rather spend a weekend in Cabo or spend a weekend as an NHL all-star? Uh, there is a line from a Dave Matthews song from many years ago that reads, it's not where, but who you're with that really matters. And I need the answer to that question. Who am, I, who am I hanging out with? Well, if you're in Cabo, I think in this scenario, you're with your family. Okay. Uh, if you're an NHL all-star, you are with your teammates and 
your opponents from the rest of the NHL. Ah, I get to see those guys all year long. Let's go to Cabo. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, Jonathan Marcheseau was a late addition to the all-star team. Um, he got added late. He was apparently already in Cabo. He went on vacation because he wasn't an all-star and it's all-star weekend. He's got some time off. So he went to Cabo and he found out in the back of a cab in Cabo. That's when he got the call that, Hey, you're an all-star. And I'm under the assumption Jonathan Marshall could have said no, that he could have said, eh, I'm already in Cabo. I'm going to decline the invitation, decline the offer to come back to Las Vegas to be an all-star. But it's the first time Jonathan Marshall has been an NHL all-star in his career. He got on a plane. He came back to Las Vegas and he participated in the all-star game. I do, because Marshall said something about the idea of, hey, being an all-star for the first time. I do wonder how much that played into it, like that he actually viewed it as a recognition because the main the main difference in the NHL All-Star uh, game and most of our other professional All-Star games here in the U.S. is the limited number. Like Kirk Cousins, I think, was the first quarterback to take a snap for the NFC yesterday in the Pro Bowl. We can all agree Kirk Cousins is not the upper echelon of quarterback play in the NFL. But in the NHL, it is like 12 guys from each division that make it. You're talking about less than 50 guys. And yeah, they take one player from every team. So there's a couple of guys that probably don't belong. But for the most part, if you're going to the All-Star game, you might be one of the 50 best players in the league. So I do wonder how much for Marshall it was. Well, this is the first time that feels like an honor. I need to show up, even if it means cutting my vacation in Cabo short. This is a bigger question, though, Tyler. This is something that we have to be willing to take a higher view of and say, why are we still playing All-Star games? Really, what's the what's the point of this? All-Star games are played out. And you know how I know that? Because the leagues know it. Because every one of the four major professional sports leagues in the last decade has made huge tweaks to its format in the All-Star game to try to keep it relevant or interesting. Look at... The NBA put in the Elam ending, which I know makes you thrilled. Very happy. The NFL has overhauled Pro Bowl weekend multiple times. The NHL, it seems like the NHL changes the format of the All-Star game every single year. Major League Baseball went the farthest and decided at one point that the World Series <laughs> home field would be determined by who won the All-Star game. And they did it because in the end, nobody was taking it seriously. And they weren't put in to be a serious thing, but... In the modern era where we have interleague play, where we have access to players from all over the place, it's more about the recognition than it is about the actual game. They're making money off of it. I mean, that's that's the yes, that's of course, the it's a marketing tool. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's a huge look. It's a it's a you know what it is? It's a conference. It's a junket for <laughs> corporate sponsors. Oh, come on out to Vegas this weekend. We're playing the All Star Game. I want to know how many of those corporate sponsors actually attended the entire All Star Game. <laughs> okay, now what maybe was important here, uh, Adam? Do you know the answer to this? Where could you bet on the results of the NHL All Star Skills Competition? Uh, no regulated book that I was aware of okay. was offering lines on this. Okay. Because there was the breakaway challenge for the NHL All-Star Skills Competition, and Alex Petrangelo was named the winner of the breakaway challenge. Now, he didn't actually score on his breakaway. He missed the net. Uh, but John Hamm, who was one of the uh, 
one of the judges, he apparently was allowed to give Alex Petrangelo a 19, even though every other judge and every other score was only allowed to give one through 10. He somehow gave Alex Petrangelo a 19. Somehow this was rigged so that Alex Petrangelo, who might've had the worst of all the breakaway challenge shootouts, won this because John Hamm was able to give him a 19. And I kind of wish your answer to where could you bet on this had been, yeah, you could have bet on this at any casino in Las Vegas because that would have been a much uh, more interesting story. It would have. It would have. I need to ask you a question in response to that whole thing, though. Uh, why is John Hamm famous? I know the answer I to this. Do, I don't know. I'm assuming he's an actor, but uh, you could tell me he's a magician. You could tell me that he is a uh, musician. I don't know who John Hamm is. So you don't know what show he's most famous for? I don't have a clue. No, I saw, I saw him judging, and I was like, yeah, he doesn't look that familiar. Yeah. Okay. Do I get to find out, or, or are we just leaving this up there as, as everybody Well, I, I, I wanted funny. to let that breathe for a second. Okay. But, uh, yeah, John Hamm was the star of Mad Men. Are you familiar with Mad Men? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Have you recently seen an Apple TV commercial? Where oh, a very... that's John Hamm. Oh, hey. I have... yes. Yeah, you could have been like, he's the guy from the Apple TV commercials, and I would have known him from that. Know. Yeah, okay. That's, so, what he's, uh, that's what he's most famous yeah. for. Yeah, 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 Kara, I understand. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just something that we have to live with here. Uh, here he said that, and I was like, oh, that's what you know him from. Really? Right. Okay, yeah. not Mad Men. Yeah. Not no, Tag. Not... Nope. I've never seen it. I've never seen Mad Men. I've seen Apple TV commercials. Yeah, but you haven't seen most movies or TV shows. That's, that's true. But yeah, I've seen so. commercials that come on during sporting events. Of course you so have. So yep. I've seen John Hamm. So mm-hmm. yeah, there we go. Um, by the way, I'm not sure if Trevor Zegras was cheating during the skills competition. Uh, he mimicked dodgeball and had mascots throwing dodgeballs at him. But I'm pretty sure he had a puck that was stuck to his stick. Because otherwise he defied the laws of physics with his goal. But that was very fun. And uh, Jack Hughes had a many Jack Hughes come out and score. But yeah, all, of did. That, all of that lost to Alex Petrangelo, who missed the entire net, all because the guy from the Apple TV commercials had it rigged from the beginning. And I hope, I wish there had been a better sports betting story to this, because that would have been a lot of fun to have a rigged skills competition with people actually betting on it. Coming up next, though, we're going to dive into the NBA with John Von Tobel. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now is Jonathan Von Tobel. You can hear him on VSIN from one to two. Good morning, John. I got an important question for you and I'll let you go wherever you want to go with this one. Is James Harden going to get traded before the deadline? I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Like it just, the only reason I say no is because it, it, it's a deal that can be done still in the off season, right? Like, so if you're Brooklyn, for example, you know, you have a very minute sample size of it, but you can go to Harden. You can say like, Hey, look, man, like we have all three of you together. We're pretty elite. Like that's still available. It's just, you guys haven't been available, whether it's Kyrie's, you know, whole vaccine thing, whether it's injuries to both Harden and Durant. So I feel like you just try to convince them like, Hey man, let's just finish out the season and see what happens. You know, the Eastern conference, is pretty wide open. The Bulls are really bad defensively, and their two best defenders aren't coming back anytime soon. Uh, the Heat are pretty good, and the Bucks are pretty good. But outside of that, like you know, you're the third best team, and despite your record, I think in the conference. So, I, like, I don't think it really happens. There's plenty of time in the offseason to get it done. So, I will say no. All right, John. So, in the East, the number one team and the number twelve team are separated by nine losses. In the West, the number one team and the number 12 team are separated by 24 
losses. Is anyone in the East going to be able to challenge, let's say, any of the top three from the West by the time we get to the finals? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, like, if, if we're talking about, like, like Milwaukee, for example, right, I'm like, I still have Milwaukee as the highest power-rated team in the Eastern Conference, and I still think they're one of the better teams uh, in the overall the grand scheme of things. I think the problem with, like, Milwaukee, who has been really uneven for the most part, has just been, you know, they got that championship, right? Like, they got the bug. It was like, ah, you know what? Like, we got to play 82 games, or we just got to get through this. Like, I just kind of want to get there, and then you can wake me up when it starts. So, like, given the uneven results, I can understand, like, a team like Milwaukee maybe taking a step back, and they're like, ah, maybe they're not as good, but I think they are. Brooke Lopez is going to come back from that back surgery, it sounds like, before the regular season is over. So you expect them back at full strength. So, yes, I would say so. And I also think... When you're looking at the gap in the top of the teams from the Eastern Conference and Western Conference, the respective others at the bottom of their conferences, the Western Conference, to be honest with you, they just kind of stink, man. Like, it's like this is the worst we've seen the Western Conference as a whole in a really long time. If you're talking about from six on, like Denver's got some really big injuries. The Timberwolves are a good story, but you know the Timberwolves, the Clippers have those injuries to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. The Lakers have roster construction issues. The Pelicans, who are now the ten seed, are just a bad team. So. I think that gap is more reflective on the status of the conference as a whole as opposed to the power of the teams at the top, if that makes sense. The Cleveland Cavaliers, they trade for Karis Levert. Uh, how good do you think the Cavs are? Should they be going for it this year? Like, could they actually find a way to win the East this season? I don't know if they're going to win the East. I mean, I think there's like, a, depending on the matchup of the first round, there's a playoff series win uh, that is in there, right? That makes some sense. And when you look at like the, the deal itself, so we're talking, you're talking about a uh, 2022 second round pick via Miami, uh, lottery protected first round pick, two second round picks. Like I, I didn't really love like everything and Ruki Rugo's expiring contract. Um, like I didn't really love the package as a whole, uh, but like it's not terrible. Like you're not shipping off everything, right? You're not really going for it, going for it. You're saying, look, like we have a clear weakness in the backcourt. Like we have, we have Darius Garland. He's the only guy that can dribble the ball. Outside of that, then it's a Rajon Rondo and a whole bunch of mishmash. Karis Levert is a pretty good isolation scorer. He gives us another ball handler. We don't have to ship off the entire farm to do it. So I think it makes sense. Like it's not one of those where, like my worry with Cleveland was kind of what you're alluding to, Tyler, where they were going to be like, hey man, we're better than we think we are, and then they're going to shoot for the moon and end up falling flat on their face. I don't think that was the case here. I kind of like this mainly because it improves a position of weakness for this team, which has been ravaged by injury. And now you're just that little bit better. You have that other isolation score that can help you out in some of those situations where the game slows down. And he's not a half bad defender either. So it fits almost everything they needed and he didn't chip off a lot. So given the, the matchup, like right now, the four five is uh, Philadelphia. Uh, they, that's a winnable series for them. And if anybody else can sneak into that, whether it's going to be uh, Boston, Charlotte, whoever can climb their way up, there's a playoff series victory in there, but I don't know about a conference win. Java Tobel joining us here on the press box with Tyler and Adam. Uh, I have a question about awards, but I'm going to save that for just a second because you brought up Ricky Rubio's expiring contract and the NBA is the only league that gives us the expiring contract. You don't get traded. Your expiring contract got traded. Is there a real world equivalent to this? Because I kind of aspire to be like, oh, we didn't know we didn't bring in Adam Candy. We brought in Adam Candy's mediocre right. hair. You know, like <laughs> like what what is it that uh, matches up to the real world for expiring contract? Uh, I can't even think of anything at this point right now. Yeah. I guess uh, just, yeah, I was kind of I was just kind really. of fascinated by the concept. No, it's great. Like you know, and, and I mean, to be fair to Ricky Rubio, he was actually had a really good season. He just got injured, but like you're right, like. 
hey, man, we have this terrible contract. Just take this off our hands for us. Like, <laughs> it's a, right. It, 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 right, it's exactly. Like, like, oh, you, you don't want Ricky Rubio. You just want... You're just trading for his contract. He could be anybody. He could be literally any human being. All right, let's switch over and talk about uh, something that people can actually uh, do. The NBA awards season is uh, pretty much year-long if you want to bet on it. Um, Let's talk about MVP for a second. Uh, Currently at DraftKings, top four pretty clearly, Embiid, Jokic, Giannis, Steph. Um, I'm not big on Giannis here in this four. I think you can make a pretty solid case for the other three. Where are you right now? Yeah, I agree. Uh, Giannis is up there for namesake only. Like he shouldn't. And you're talking about like odds too. By the way, some spots have him like 370. Uh, that's to me, that's ridiculous. Like I mentioned, the up and down nature of the team. January they were playing essentially 500 basketball. Like they don't really care. And while Giannis statistically is one of the best players in the NBA, I don't think that the way that this team has played or, or his output this year, I don't think you'd put him up there with the most valuable player, especially when you're talking about. You know, Joel Embiid at some spots two to one, and then him at plus three seventy. Like I think there's a much bigger gap between just those two alone. Uh, so I would agree with the sentiment that Giannis doesn't really deserve to be up there this season. Look, I, I think Joel Embiid is the favorite. I'll put it this way, Adam, because I'm going everywhere. I think Nikola Jokic should be the favorite by my own standing, only because when you look at it statistically, like purely statistical, he is the most valuable player to his team. The Nuggets are worse than the Detroit Pistons without him on the floor. They are better than the Golden State Warriors with him on the floor in terms of net rating. Like, it's very simple. He is literally the most valuable player to his team. But voters don't vote on that, right? And Joel Embiid has one thing that is going for him outside of Nikola Jokic, and that's narrative. Joel Embiid is doing this with Ben Simmons sitting on the sideline with an empty roster spot that he is dealing with. He's doing it with a whole bunch of dudes around him that aren't, like, they're good, but they're not exactly great. He's getting a lot out of Tyrese Maxey and whatnot, but... You know, he's kind of dragging this roster by the scruff of its neck to potentially a top-four seed in the Eastern Conference. That, to me, he is the favorite because narrative plays a part in these awards, and so he's going to be up there. But to me, it is Joel Embiid, it is Nikola Jokic in their own tier. There is a gap. Then you can throw John Morant in there by himself in his own little tier, and then another gap, and then whoever else you want to throw beneath those. So my top three in order would be Embiid, Jokic, and Morant, and I think those three are – kind of in their own stratosphere, and then you can talk about whoever else. But I think those are your top three options at this point. If you follow John on Twitter, at me, JVT, and you see his profile picture or his actual name on Twitter, you'll know the answer to this question. But who should win Defensive Player of the Year? So, Ty, this is, this is a movement that we have started this year uh, for J- Jaron Jackson Jr. to win Defensive Player of the Year. Now, this is, this is purely uh, still, like, this is motivated for selfish reasons because I bet Jaron Jackson Jr. to win Defensive Player of the Year at 300 to 1. And, and look, he's got actually he had a really good case. You know, when I bet it, that was there. And then all of a sudden, right, Rudy Gobert goes down with injury. He's still out. Draymond Green goes down with a serious injury. He is still out. He actually has a lot of great numbers in terms of what he does in rim defense, block, and leads the lead in blocks at this point right now. Uh, he is the best defensive player on a team that is first in defensive efficiency since the end of November, right? He has a, a legitimate shot at this. He's going to be an all defensive team. And he has gone from about 300 to 1. Uh, he was actually 490 to 1 at Boyd, but literally the day I was driving over, they pulled him off of the board. So I had to go get 300 to 1 somewhere else. Um, but he's got a real shot at this. And now he's down to as low as 550, like plus 550 to win this thing. Or some spots have him down like eight, uh, 5 to 1 or 6 to 1. So it's, it's a great value play on my part. And I'm literally just pushing this for selfish reasons because I would like to win about $20,000. You know, maybe take a couple of days off. But. Uh, look, he's got a legitimate shot at it. He's a really good player, and uh, it's not just, hey, I want to win some money. He deserves it. And John Morant's been pushing it now for the last couple of weeks. 
you should watch him play because he has transformed defensively in a really big way this year. Before we let you go, do you believe in the Grizzlies? Like, is this a legitimate title contender this year? Uh, yes, just given the makeup of the Western Conference, I would say yes, because I think the, the Warriors are flawed. The Suns are extremely good, and they're better than the Grizzlies. But outside of that, unless the Nuggets start to look like the Nuggets they were last year before everybody went down with injury, I, they're clearly the third-best team, and that gives you a shot. Well, he is Jonathan Von Tobel. Again, you can hear him on v from 1 to 2. John, as always, we appreciate it. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you. So there is John Von Tobel. Um, Adam? I just want to make sure everybody knows uh, what you did there early in that interview when you said the difference between first and 12th in the East is nine losses. Um, Would you like to tell everybody who is 12th in the East? Okay. I will play along with this, (laughs) but only because I even thought about it. Uh, Now, if I were to have made it 13th in the East, it it would have been 16 losses between first and 13th. So the the, the stat really needed to be cut off at 12th. But... (laughs) The New York Knicks are 24 and 29 in 12th place in the Eastern Conference. And what I wanted to talk to John about, if we had a little more time, was the fact that I was watching Knicks Grizzlies the other night. And I had this weird dilemma because obviously I'm a Knicks fan. I'm pulling for the Knicks. Yet I'm watching the Grizzlies and there's so much damn fun that I'm still like I'm rooting for the Grizzlies at the same time. I basically became I just hope both teams had fun. (laughs) They. The Grizzlies are incredible. Like, I, I've asked that question. Anybody we've had on about the NBA the last uh, couple of weeks, just please say yes to the Grizzlies being a title contender because I, I want them to be. Like, I want to watch this team in the Western Conference Finals, in the NBA Finals. Like, I, my main, I don't know if it's a fear here, but my main concern is that John Morant and the Grizzlies end up like Damian Lillard and the Blazers, where you get, like, what, the one run to the Western Conference Finals, but you're pretty much in over your head in that scenario. But that's sort of the, the peak. And I hope that's not the case because I want I want to watch fun. And John Morant and the Grizzlies are at the top of the list in that. And if they can get to the Western Conference Finals or even the NBA Finals, that's, that's going to be terrific. Like, they're unbelievably fun to watch. And I hope they're successful. And uh, sure, we can win JBT $20,000 with his Jaron Jackson Defensive Player of the Year ticket as well. Yeah, the, you're... You're absolutely right about the Grizzlies in terms of the fun element. Here's why they're better than the Blazers uh, ever were. Uh, C.J. McCollum as a number two was probably better than anybody the Grizzlies have in current form. But if you tell me that Dylan Brooks and Desmond Baker and Jackson Jr. all could be better, I would agree with you. Because the Memphis Grizzlies are a deeper team that is still ascendant right now they're still moving in the right direction the trouble for the Grizzlies is going to be this right now they're pretty locked into that three seed so here's the list of teams that could end up in the six the Lakers the Clippers the T-Wolves the Nuggets the Nuggets are going to get Jamal Murray back the Clippers are going to get everybody back and the Lakers if they could just figure out how to sit Russell Westbrook down are going to be dangerous as well so i worry about who the grizzlies draw in round 1 oh, it feels nba's fun like the east you look at the east standings right now miami chicago are 1 2 cleveland's 4 you look at the west and phoenix is still there but memphis is at 3 like it's it's about as wide open as we've seen the nba in a long time coming up next we'll jump into some unlv basketball as they got beat down by utah state over the weekend Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is The Press Box with Graney and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. 
Ed is out at the Super Bowl all week. Adam Candy in today. And we're going to talk about some UNLV basketball because their two-game winning streak was snapped. They went to Utah State and lost 90-75. to Now, one of the important factors of this game, Donovan Williams did not play. Donovan Williams has had a knee injury. Uh, and it's been an interesting way that UNLV has, I guess, handled Donovan Williams because over the last five games, he did not play the first of those five. He then played the first half of the second game, then did not play the third game, then did play in the fourth game and played over 20 minutes, played in both halves, and then did not play again against Utah State. So he has been alternating playing and not playing because of this knee injury. And it would appear... Uh, Kevin Kruger, very vague with injuries, probably as vague as the Golden Knights are. But it would appear as though Donovan Williams is basically trying to play at less than 100%, re-aggravating his knee, having to miss some time. Trying to play at less than 100%, re-aggravating his knee, having to miss some time. And it feels like they're doing this just very poorly. Like, it feels like this should have just been, hey, Donovan Williams is going to sit down for two whole weeks and then come back and presumably be good to go from there because it cannot be good for a guy to continually play, not play, play, not play. Like, it seems like they've mishandled Donovan Williams' knee injury. I mean, obviously, I don't have any insight into the medical piece, but I do have a lot of insight into what this UNLV team should be looking at. And I know it's hard to say in year one, that Kevin Kruger shouldn't be looking at the rest of this regular season. But in terms of what this team can accomplish, this regular season means very little. We already, in mid-January, started talking about, well, maybe they can make a run in the Mountain West Tournament, which is where we've been with UNLV basketball for a decade. And that's fine. It is what it is at this point. The Mountain West happens to be very, very good at the top in Kevin Kruger's first year, and that's not his fault. So now you look at this team and you say, well, what gives them the best chance of making a run the Mountain West Tournament? It's a healthy Donovan Williams. So yes, sit him down because you need him healthy for the tournament. That's the only thing that matters. Because right now, Bryce Hamilton is on one of those NBA Jam, he's on fire runs. And everybody else is just sort of plunking around for UNLV. Um, you're not going to win any games, Tyler, allowing 64% shooting from the field the way UNLV did up at Utah State. And so when you're going to have games like that, you might as well just rest your best players and get them ready for when you need them. Yeah, so that's the uh, big key here for UNLV in this loss to Utah State. The defense, this was the worst defensive game of the season. They gave up 1.48 points per possession. Worst of the year. It's the worst since a loss in Marvin Menzies last year against Air Force. Uh, in fact, in the Ken Palm era, which goes back to the 2001-2002 season, that's the fourth worst defensive game UNLV has had. In two decades of basketball, only three times has UNLV had a worse defense. And to give you some fun context here, Marvin Menzies' first-year team that got destroyed by Duke at T-Mobile Arena Duke did not hit 1.48 points per possession in that game. That is how bad UNLV got beat defensively. Uh, some of that was Utah State playing very well. Anytime you get torched that badly, the other team has a very good night. They shot very well from three. But UNLV really couldn't do any. Like They, they struggled at everything defensively. They couldn't really defend off the dribble in that game. Hell, they gave up a few post-ups at times in that game. Got torched from three, but probably the worst thing, like walking away from that, was they got beat by off-ball cuts. 
Like Utah State had some really good passing, but UNLV, like, simplifying it, just fell asleep off the ball a lot. And that's kind of not acceptable. And it's it's continued this, I was going to say trend, but it's almost a lack of a trend. Like, is UNLV good at defense or not? Because in Mountain West play, they've had some really good defensive performances and some awful ones. Like they held New Mexico to its second worst offensive efficiency of the season. They held Colorado State well below their average, right? They held Nevada to its third worst, but they also gave up Air Force's second best offensive night of the season. San Diego State had one of its top five offensive efficiency performances of the season against UNLV. And now this game against Utah State, which was Utah State's far and away, their best of the year. They've played 10 Mountain West games. Five times they've been below one point per possession or allowed below one point per possession. Five times they've allowed less. And I can't figure it out because this team was supposed to be good defensively. And we've seen lots of moments where they are good defensively, but it doesn't exist on a nightly basis. And that's very strange to me. So here's the trick for UNLV. We've talked about them as the team that beats who they're supposed to beat and loses to who they're supposed to lose to. This Utah State game, I'd say, despite the fact that this team is as ranked highly as it is Ken Palm-wise, Utah State is kind of who you have to beat if you want to prove that you are that next-tier team in the Mountain West because Utah State is beating up on the worst of the conference and they are losing to the best teams in the conference. Now, granted, Colorado State, Wyoming, Fresno, Boise, they lost those four games in the middle of conference by a combined 17 points uh this team is 29th overall in ken palm adjusted offensive efficiency and so that being said it's not as bad to me that unlv got ripped the way that it did on defense but i think unlv right now needs to be looking at saying how do we establish ourselves as a problem in the mountain west tournament right it's bryce hamilton at this level 